You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. It's long-form one-on-one conversations with veterans in the arts. This show is produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events in order to re-energize and reinvigorate American theater and the live performance arts. My guest this week was James David Henry, and um, I guess I want to start with how he came to my attention. Um, he had submitted his play, There Is No Eden, to us uh, for our, our current iteration of the playwriting competition. Uh, and uh, that's the competition that ended technically on July 4th and has been in judging ever since. Uh, the play didn't make the top 10, but it was funny it was well written and it was the kind of thing where i was like oh he's an interesting voice and then he actually hit me up on instagram because he was putting on the show in new york city and he uh asked if vet rep could give him a shout out and i was happy to do so and then uh and it kind of things started to link up for me i was like okay he's in new york city so he's relatively close by he's putting on the show He's, um, you know, clearly aggressive about his career. Um, then it just, his name started popping up more and more and more. Um, I looked into him and saw, wow, he went to NYU's grad school, which as I, as he and I talk about in the episode, there's really, you know, general pop wisdom on this kind of thing is there's three, uh, premier grad schools for acting, which is NYU, Yale and Juilliard. So coming out of NYU's grad school means a lot. I mean, that, that's, pretty high praise. And, uh, and then I was, I I think, I don't think I'm telling tales out of school to say this. Am I telling tales out of school? I'm I'm trying to, I'm trying to judge whether or not this is something that's worth my mentioning, but I'll, I'll, let me, let me put it at this. I don't want to dime people out, but there are people in the theater community that kind of, uh, nudge, nudge, wink, winked. And were like, Hey, this guy's a interesting dude. And uh, is, is really talented, and in so many different ways. And uh, nobody was telling me this for on on his behalf, but uh, just people that I that I was uh, meeting, and and folks in the theater community in the city uh, that I'd uh, you just his name would happen to come up, and I was like, okay, that's a bit that's a few too many times his name's come up. I think it's worth um, getting together and uh, talking. And obviously, I mean, you know, um, I've yet to meet an asshole on this show. <laughs> so so I feel like it's faint praise to say, oh, he's a really good guy. It's like, yeah, everybody's a good guy uh, on this show. But uh, but he was. Um, I enjoyed talking to him. Uh, you know, such an interesting story. And um, yeah, I, I'm trying to think if there was anything specific that you guys need to know that we mentioned in the episode that needs a bit more backstory. I don't think there is, but uh, it was just... I, I think the only thing I really want to do is underscore how impressive that turnaround in his life was. And I guess turnaround's not the right word. Um, how impressive his uh, shift into acting is to come from the military pedigree that he had, West Point graduate, Ranger School, uh, infantry officer, into an elite elitely trained acting program uh, is really something that that's 
really significant accomplishments in two wildly different fields. Um, so anyway, that all that was was really uh, grist for the mill and stuff. I thought was would made it would make him an interesting guest, and it was. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation, um, but I don't need to tell you that. You're about to hear it for yourselves and judge accordingly. So on that note, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director at Veterans Repertory Theater, and this is the Savage Wonder of James David Henry. Welcome to the show, James. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, dude, this is um, this is fun for me. I uh, the flash to bang with finding out about you, reading your play, seeing your that your play was going up in the city, and then yeah. talking to you was really quick. So uh, this is uh, that's very exciting. Maybe let's start with this. Uh, and I I already will have said in the intro how I found you and all that and how we kind of connected. Um, what the hell are you doing? What, why are you an actor? Are you a writer? What, what's going on? Are you everything? Um, wh- where do you see yourself right now? Yeah, right now, uh, predominantly an actor. I just got out of NYU's grad acting school uh, last May. So I've been out, well, I guess that's about, you know, 18, 19 months now. So about about a year, about a year and a half. So it was, yeah, um, through West Point, through the Army, had never done any acting, um, but always wanted to be an actor since I was a little kid. So got done, you know, was transitioning out of the Army. I was in Kuwait, actually. I did a, a YAS, if you know what that is. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, yeah individual her. augmentee yeah. to yeah. Afghanistan. Great, it's a great gig. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, but what, year, what way, year was that? What year was you did Afghanistan? That was uh, that was seventeen to eighteen. Okay, so I was in Kabul the whole time. Very, gotcha. Very odd deployment. So I was in Kuwait on the way back from that, and um, on a UN unsecured computer was googling, "How does one become an actor? What do you?" What does one do? And one of the things was basically like, hey, if you're Googling this, you clearly have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> so you should probably go to grad school and someone might give you some vague notion of what you might want to do. Uh, so I applied, somehow got into NYU grad school, um, did that for three years. And now I'm out. I think, um, you know, the goal, the goal for me, the perfect career is to you know, be in some long running show as an actor. So kind of, you know, have four credits, acting credits under my belt, like, you know, building, building that up. That's what I'm really like, I need to do. And then I'm writing as well. Um, there is no eating was my first play. I have, you know, four screenplays now. I think I prefer screenplays for writing. Um, three of them are terrible. The most recent one is, pretty good so yeah so then would want to be making money you know be a series regular on one of the law and orders or chicago fire one of those and then um making my own movies so yeah okay so you've got this all devved out i i guess there's no place to go but to start at the beginning so let's start there where'd you grow up 
Oh, sorry. Where'd you grow up? I am from Vancouver, Washington State. It's kind of a odd place to be from because you say Vancouver, everybody thinks you're Canadian. Right, of course. But, um, and then you, if um, if I say I'm from Portland, which is right across the water, everybody thinks I'm from Portland, Maine, if you're in the Northeast. But uh, no, wa- Vancouver, Washington State. Um, and were you were you a sports kid growing up? Were you yeah. a drama kid growing up? What, all okay. all sports. Never never okay. was in one play. I was in plays at my church okay. uh, I think when I was 12, you know, played like Joseph in the nativity scene. It's big, big it's role. Than, it's better than playing a tree in the nativity scene. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Could have been worse. I, have, I don't think I had any lines, but um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it was, it was important to my development as an, as an actor and yeah, sports, sports, sports went to West Point was focused on, I w- went to West Point and graduated in 2012. And when I got there in 2008, it was a very interesting environment because basically like, if you went to West Point, you were immediately going to deploy yeah. to combat when you were done. And, you know, that was it, period. Um, and then because that, that was right during the surge and that sure. had been happening for a few years. Everybody that graduated was just immediately taking a platoon and going. Sure. The transition kind of happened while I was there that my senior year, uh, we were kind of pulling out of Afghanistan. It was like, hey, if you, if you, you know, even at the same post, if you go to Fort Lewis and you go to second, second brigade, you're going to go. If you go to third brigade, you're going to not go, which is what happened to me. And then if you're in, I think it was fourth brigade, like you're shutting down. You know, if you go to Germany, you're going to be like closing those. Po- it was very odd. Right. So people were, there was this mysterious thing called the patch chart. People were trying, you know, people were like, the Pentagon was deploying people. So people were trying to figure out where to go on the patch chart. Um, so, yeah, I went to Fort Lewis. Uh, didn't, you know, didn't go to begin with. Um, well, who'd you go to at Fort Lewis? Who were you with? Fifth uh, Battalion, 20th Infantry Regiment. That was... Third Brigade okay. now is First Brigade. They okay. just uh, you know repatched, so um, that's Old Port down there. But Infantry Battalion got there. You know, was lucky enough to take a platoon right away. Um, I think I I did I did that, and then I did I was a reconnaissance platoon leader. So between those was almost three years, and then I was an XO for another year. And then deployed my last year on that YAS. So managed to stay off of staff as an officer. Um, I think I was the assistant S4 when, like, after I came back for you know two months while I was transitioning out, and then right. Okay. So I want to back up before I jump back into the army stuff because I do want to jump back into that. But you said you had wanted to be an actor as a kid. What did that mean? You just, you'd seen a lot of movies and you're like, Hey, that looks like a cool job. It wasn't anything you'd taken tangible steps towards, but in the back of your mind, was it something you were like, Hey, at some point I actually do want to take steps towards that. Or was it just, did you write that off as fantasy by the time you got to West Point? No, I think, um, I think I, you know, it certainly was a romantic, Mm -hmm. you know, notion. Like that's what I want. I mean, my favorite movie is the mummy. Brendan Fraser and Rachel Wise, you know, movies like that, adventure films. That's that's what I wanted to do. So, you know, I I think that anybody who's 
also been, you know, as a GWAT veteran, also, you know, post 9-11 had a romantic notion of what, you know, when I was 17, I had a romantic notion of American foreign policy, you know, um, so wanted to be an actor, didn't know specifically what that looked like of what you actually had to do, but um, knew that I did want to do the army. Uh, I wanted to be a platoon leader. I wanted to go to combat, wanted to do that. And then I also, you know, when I was done with that, wanted to become an actor. Um, so, so is it is it a stretch to say that the same impulse that as a kid made you want to be an actor is the same impulse that made you want to join the military? No, I'd, I'd, say that's, I'd, yeah. I'd say that's spot on. Okay. And, yeah. and in, in, in hindsight, that's, that's an interesting thing that, you know, I've thought about when I'm both like have context now in both things that it's not, you know, um, it is not the romantic notion, but also wouldn't, wouldn't have done and wouldn't do anything else, you know? Yeah. You don't regret any of the choices you made? Not, not, not at all. Especially not West Point, you know, in the army, um, being a platoon leader, you know, I oddly got to my battalion, I think a month, like they had just come, come back from, uh, block leave after deployment. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, missed anybody who's missed a deployment says they missed it you know like yeah whatever that means but um yeah but still was you know was lucky enough to be a be a platoon leader for almost three years and then be an xo in great companies you know have have a great career so wouldn't wouldn't trade that certainly when you got to west point uh initially did you feel like you had arrived? Did you feel like you're finally on purpose, on brand, on mission? Like this is exactly what I've been waiting for my whole life. I think that was it. Uh, when I took the visit there, I stayed overnight and was like, yeah, this is the place. This is the place period. Mm -hmm. Kind of shut down other um, like college ap applications. Like this is what I'm doing. This is where I need to be. Did that shine ever wear off? Oh, certainly. Certainly. Um, West Point is difficult, you know, like a lot of things in the army, it's just long. You're there, you're there for four years and it's gray and uniforms are gray. And you're just, you know, you're taking 25 credits every semester and you're getting, you know, beat down your first year. You can't talk outside all, you know, it's just, it just kind of wears on you. Um, but I, I do think that was that was definitely where I needed to be. Um, did you have infantry in mind from the second you got there, or did they fall into that eventually? Absolutely, okay. absolutely. Kind of looked at, kind of looked at engineering branch, but wanted to be an infantryman. Uh, knew that I wanted to be an infantryman. wasn't wasn't ever seriously considering doing anything else. So, what was your enthusiasm level by the time you graduated? Were you teeth on edge, ready to get into Absolutely. the active army or, okay. So you weren't totally burned out of the army yet. West point hadn't sapped all the enthusiasm out of you. No, I, I think I was a little burned out on West point. Um, okay. You know, the came yeah. there first year and that was just sort of like, put your head down and did, you know, uh, like as a freshman there, you can't talk outside, you know, yeah, you can only choose so many times per, per bite that, you know, that's what your freshman year is like, which actually was, 
easy in a way that it was just kind of mindless. You're just kind of treading water, right? Making it through. Um, and then your sophomore and junior year kind of got my legs under me. And then by the time I was a senior, I was like, okay, I'm ready to actually go do this thing. This is enough school. Let's let's get going. How did um, it, how did it feel to hit the active force and suddenly you know see you know see what was like in a wartime military on a war footing with deployments going and all that? Did it feel good? Did it feel uh, like hey, I'm finally out of, pra- of the practice room and I'm on the field now, or did it feel like Ah oh, shit! I gotta get my blood up one more time, and you know, try to muster fake enthusiasm if I can yeah, generate it I, authentically. Yeah, I think a couple of things happened that were brutal, um, but then in retrospect, actually, um, I think were the best. You know, I went to Infantry Bullock, which is you know, they just treat you like privates there, which is exactly what they should do. Um, so spent whatever that is, that school is six months, you know, um, six months there and then went to ranger school, went straight through to Florida. I don't know if you, if ranger school or, um, have experience with that, but went straight through to Florida and then failed patrols back to back in Florida. I'm like the only person that I've ever talked to, except for like the three guys that were in my platoon with me. Um, who that happened to. And then so spent, you know, three months there and didn't get tapped and then went to my unit and, you know, without a tap, which was I was, a, you know, it's a striker unit. So it's not necessarily like a death sentence, but right. um, that's tough. Oh, fuck. And I got to tell you, in retrospect, I think for my mindset of not, you know, there's the the scale of underconfidence you know you need to be in charge as a platoon leader and then the overconfidence were like i'll tell my platoon sergeant who's been in the army for right. 10 years and has four deployments i'm going to tell him how we're going to run this right. you know those guys have a lot of success but <laughs> fell closer to that range where i you know i had something to prove and also had, had just come from a massive failure you know i just get, spent all that time there and didn't get a tap so showed up to my unit um, the first day I was just like lost in the sauce and got screamed at by the battalion commander. Just walked right by him during PT because I didn't. Oh, wow. So yeah. my very first experience with my battalion commander was just getting screamed at uh, and, and doing a lot of pushups. I was like, hey, sir, I'm, I'm one of your new uh, lieutenants. How you doing? So somehow that turned into him immediately giving me a platoon. But huh. uh that just kind of had no idea. They they came back from a deployment. I mean, they they lost five guys on that right. deployment, and the platoon that I was in, um, the guy that I replaced had replaced the platoon leader in Afghanistan who had gotten killed. So like this platoon had you know yeah. was struggling. They had lost some of their NCO leadership guys had gotten really really hurt. Um, but then came, so came into that that was kind of, you know, uncertain, the best platoon sergeant in the world, Andy Kent, you know, he just retired as a first sergeant, um, and also just got along really well with him. So pretty immediately I was like, "Mm, this is going to work. This is really going to work. Um, and had a, had a really successful, uh, time as a platoon leader because of that, because of him. 
So they never offered to send you back to ranger school or recycle you or anything? So I, my whole uh, shtick, my whole time being a platoon there was that like, I'm never going back to that place. <laughs> I felt so cheated, you know, because I we shuffled. This whole thing happened with like platoons. I got put in these two platoons where I think 10 people total from two cycles of Florida graduated. Pretty much if you get to Florida, if yeah. you don't, you know, if you don't peer out, you you graduate. You know, most people graduate from that from that phase. And I went back to back, just got in these platoons where that were terrible. Nobody graduated. So I felt very cheated and was like, I'm not going back, I'm not going back. So I I was coming up to the end of being a platoon leader. I think I'd been there a little bit past my expiration date. It was there about 18 months. And my battalion commander came to me and said, Hey, um, I'll give you the reconnaissance platoon. But you got to go back and you got to get a tap. Okay. So I uh, went back to Ranger School, went straight through, graduated, did what I needed to do. So now, you know, now I, I you know, left the Army with a tab. So that was a good uh, redemptive experience, but I did. I, I did bet. Yeah. What, what would that have meant, do you think, had you not, had you never even either had the opportunity or not been able to make it through? Okay. I would have been... Yeah, so uh, I'm getting a little personal here, but, you know, like any good infantryman, like any good soldier, got a lot of daddy issues. Um, my dad is in prison. He um, he was a he's the worst person in the world, was a total coward. And he was an infantry officer and he didn't go to ranger school. He opted out because he was afraid of the swimming test. So my, you know, I had this little chip on my shoulder where like, I'm going to, I'm going to get a tab because I'm better than him. And if I, man, if I had especially gotten all the way there and then had not graduated, I would have been so disgusted with myself for the rest of my life to not, to not get that tab. So, uh, I can't tell you how annoying it was to come and do all the exact same things again. Um, but it was it was really important, and then you know, I, I, all the NCOs in the reconnaissance platoon were all tab. Yeah, sure. And any and once once you're an XO, even in a striker battalion, like you want to be tabbed. You know? Right. So oh, hundred yeah. percent. As an infantry officer, you got to have a tab. You know? it, totally. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah. Do you think if you hadn't gone back and 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 done it, you would have stayed in longer? Like, do you think, feel like there would have been more to prove? It'd have been like, oh Jesus, I got to do something to bake up for this. Like I don't know. I feel like sometimes that's how it goes, where it's like you just permanently have a hill to climb because you didn't, you know, get tabbed or or do some hit some major wicket in your career. Yeah, I I think a deployment mm. for me was that that was the thing. So okay. I yeah. you know kind of weaseled my way into that one. Um, again, the the XO time I got. You know, I took uh, Charlie Company and then I was XO or um, HHC XO. So it kind of, again, kept that going a little bit longer. Most people rotate out. Yeah. But like that was starting to come to like, hey, we got to, you know. You know, now First Lieutenant about to be junior Captain Henry's has got he's got to get on staff somewhere and we got to start talking about MCCC and stuff. Hey, let me uh, find, find a way. 
you know, and then also I just, you know, didn't have that patch on my right shoulder yeah. during the time. My, my graduating class from West Point is kind of, cause it's about 50, 50, um, now as people got out, you know, people that deployed and didn't deploy. Really? Yeah. Wow. Like where I, where, you know, where I said like class of 2010, you know, and the, unless something weird happened to you, you, you know, you deploy at some point. Right. Um, and then my, my class, you know, it's about half. So, um, yeah, went to Afghanistan. Um, and that was the big thing too. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to ask about Afghanistan. Well, maybe let me, let me do that. Let me stop bouncing around. Um, where were you RS headquarters or what what were you doing? Okay. Um, I got a individual augmentee to be a logistician. Um, I, I, showed up and they thought I was a loggy and they were really confused when I got there. Uh, I was like, Nope, I've, you know, I've been in XO, but otherwise I've never done supply in my life. Um, uh, was in Kabul and then, um, you know, going out and doing at that time, they were going out and doing these like two week advising missions out to the different, you know, outposts. Mm-hmm. At that time, you know, the, the Italians were in charge of Farah and the Germans were in charge of Kunduz up north and everybody had kind of lost that ground and nobody really knew what was going on. And those missions, you know, got on the ground of those places and was like, oh, this is like, there's really no ANA action mm-hmm. going on. You know, we've lost all this. It was, it was pretty, uh, it provided a lot of context to me and a lot of sadness about the war in Afghanistan. That was a lot of what I got from that. Um, were you working for conventional or were you working for RS or were you working for who, who are you working for? It was, uh, yeah, it was working for RS. Okay. Um, so the all CJ, the NATO the, stuff. the CJ four office. Okay. So I was working for an air force colonel, um, who his bread and butter was air force su- supply. Gotcha. So it was three logisticians there before I got there. I replaced a major who was a loggy okay. and they were, you know, I got, yep. what do we do with you? You have no, right. you have no idea what you're doing. So they both taught me how to kind of work as a loggy. And then they were like, okay, so you're an infantryman. Let's have you, you know, go on these missions so that you're, you know, they felt that would be a little bit more helpful, like, you know, because the 101st was mainly providing security for those missions. So a company would go out to these, uh, you know, different commands around the country for these short term um, advising missions. So I would I would kind of, you know, be the supply on the ground. Um, OK. Yeah. But that was that was pretty complex because nothing was on the ground. You know, everything at that point in time was being flown in. Right, right. Um, it was all of, hopping. Yeah. Nobody kind of was weren't doing through. convoys anymore. Like no, no, yeah. nobody except SF was driving around at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And it, well, and even then that's, yeah, it was pretty limited. Wow. So what was, what was your goal when you got the YS Tasker? Were you, did you, did you have something in the back of your mind? Like I really, you know, I want to get, I mean, I guess you would get your CIB if if you see combat because you're still an infantryman, right? Uh, you, I mean, was that a goal or like what what were you thinking when, when you were there? What was it just to be in the country and that was the success? I mean, 
or, or was there a, was there a wicket you were trying to pass through as well? For me, it wasn't. Um, it it was a sense of you know putting into words wanting to do the job. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about mm-hmm. like being a football player, and I've been in training camp. Oh my goodness, you know, now I've done four NTC rotations up at Fort Lewis. Go out to you know, I have started so many fires out in Yakima. Uh, fire, you know, doing striker gunnery. Yeah. You know, and then spent time, a lot of time fighting those fires. You know, we've been in, I've been in training camp now for four years. Yeah. Um, knew at that point, was fairly confident I was going to get out and move on to the next thing. Um, it was kind of a question between, so I think for officers, like there's the kind of the points where you get out. If you can, if right. you're going to get out five, get out in five. Right. Or you're going to stay and do triple C and then stay for command. And that's a good point to get it, you know, to get out. And then if you stay after command, you know, you get grad school and then then you're at 14 and, you know, then get to 20 if you right. if you can. So right. it was kind of a question of staying for five or staying for eight. Um, I was like, you know, before, I, you know, before I get out of the army, let me let me do this thing. I don't know what that means. And it's obviously very different from yeah. what it would have been if I had gone as a infantry platoon leader. Right. Right. Um, but I'm yeah, what, what did you think? what did you think when you were going in as a logistician? I mean, were, were you bummed? Were you like, oh, fuck it, whatever. It gets me into country. I mean, what was your attitude about taking the gig? Yeah, it was, it was more of that. Um, and I, I tell you what I was not expecting was, uh, you know, the CJ, the combined joint staff in Kabul and mm-hmm. the way that that looked and, the very odd, like multinational and the, the kind of missions that we were doing and the leadership that was there. I was, I was not expecting that. Um, it was very, uh, I don't want to say disappointing to me, but just immediately got a lot of context of, Oh, this is how this is actually going. And this is what this war looks like right now. And um. Yeah, I gotta. I gotta tell you, pretty immediately had a response. I'm, and I, I just, this doesn't seem like it's working. It doesn't seem like an effective strategy we got going on here. So, you know, how much like face? A, t- how much face time did you get with the ANA, or with Afghans in general? Uh, other than those, you know, probably a month of going out to do these, you know advising missions um and then a lot of uh around Kabul um doing high level advising right you know i had a couple times of, of advising you know lieutenant colonels and majors in their army and that was um not not very much and not consistently you know yeah not yeah. not anybody that you were partnering up with for right. a long period of time Right. So when you left country, were you bummed? Were you dissatisfied? Was there, did it leave a bad taste in your mouth? Or were you like, hey, fuck yeah, I did a year in Afghanistan. I can, you know, I'm feeling like I at least ticked that box. Yeah. No, I, I think, um, no, I was, I was very, I was very disappointed, but not necessarily you know in in going it was i'm I'm very very grateful for have seen that for having Mm -hmm. seen this yeah Um, 
you know, and it's, it's a, we just had our West Point 10 year reunion actually this past Saturday. So I mm-hmm. talked to, you know, all my best friends there who had these very diverse military experiences, you know, um, and it's interesting that, you know, kind of what happens to you, you people are very bitter about, um, you know, and people, people to get into situations where, man, both the army and then American foreign policy, you know, what we're doing, yeah. man, I just so, so deeply disagree with this. Or I see that, uh, it, man, it's just not working. And am I crazy? Does, does everybody else just see that it's not working and we're just kind of letting it ride? Um, so, yeah, that was – I also had a different experience from people that had been there because, for instance, you know, my platoon sergeant had been to – Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, three times uh, before I met him and he had, you know, left friends there, which gives you a whole different emotional attachment to the place. Whereas I went there a bit detached, you know, and was it and was at a headquarters where I was interacting every day with two stars and one stars and this like very operational look where I didn't. You know, I wasn't moving, you know, I wasn't moving the needle and with any of, you know, right. my decisions for these right. two stars, you know, right. Right. but was able to, but was sitting in in a lot of those meetings. And going, Man, oh, that's, that's what's happening. Mm. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Is this how yeah. this has always been going? That's, oh, I can see that that's not going to work out. It seems like that's not going to work out. What was your, I mean, I can't help but ask, um, just from your perspective, what was your biggest beef? What was the biggest eye-opening thing, your biggest takeaway about well, Afghanistan? The thing that I saw most often was just supply. And basically, mm-hmm. like, you know, we take a thousand bullets because everything the, the ANA has, we give to them. So we take a thousand bullets and we fly into the calf and then it gets sent down, you know, where, where my platoon you know, my, my battalion was on their first deployment and say spin bulldog. So down like in the very Southeast on the border of Pakistan. So we get, you know, whatever, you know, the thousand bolts. So you send it down there and we know this happens because we follow some of these convoys with predator feed and we watch it happen. And so on the way, you know, a hundred bullets gets taken by the Afghan, you know, mm-hmm. contractor and then 200 gets taken by the ANA that's transporting it during this portion. And, 200 more gets taken by the commander for his personal compound for his personal army. And then 200 gets given to the Taliban so that they don't attack this combo. So that it actually, you know, and so, so it gets there and then we go and do an advising mission there and the ANA, you know, private ANA down there is like, yeah, I don't have any ammo. I've never gotten any. Right. Right. And then we, and then the communication goes back up North. Right. So the, you know, Back in the day, like platoon leaders through company commanders through battalion commanders. And then when I was there, I was like, you know, we're passing up information. Like, hey, none of this is arriving. And then at some point, that somehow transforms into, hey, you know, Pentagon higher ups or hey, congressmen, we just sent a thousand rounds to the ANA and Spin Boldak. And they're prepared to fight the Taliban and we're standing them up. And we did that. And that was good. Right. And so both it's like that didn't happen. 
and where, you know, this is sort of a cynical viewpoint on it, but it's kind of, it's like, okay, so that, that didn't happen. And we see that that didn't happen. And then we keep bringing things in and giving it to them. And we're not, it's not getting, it's not getting mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. A&A is not, you know, they're not armed. They're not fed. They're not paid, you know? And so then, you know, when we pull out of the country, what happens happened because they're not armed. They're not, they don't have any ammo. They don't have any food. They don't pay, you know, that, that was what I saw, you know, from, from my very, very little, you know, one piece of a 10,000 piece puzzle. Right. At least was what I took from it. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, the, the endemic corruption of Afghanistan, I think is, is jaw dropping. And I think that's not, that's certainly not news, um, you know, and that's, uh, but it is, it is a sight to behold. And I think it's a, yeah. um, People who listen to this show know my thoughts and feelings about Afghanistan and everything there. So I won't, I won't bore you with that now, but yeah, I, I agree. Um, You know, the, the, the corruption is a significant piece of it. Um, For you, when did the actual, what was the inflection point to decide that the military was not going to be your career. When did that moment happen? Was it way before Afghanistan? No, I, I think it was during the beginning of the uh, deployment. Really? Yeah. But before I was leaving, I was looking at, you know, because then it's like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come back. I'm immediately gonna go to intricacy, and then I'm gonna decide, you know put in for some duty stations and where do mm-hmm. I want to take command and yeah. what, do, what do I want that to look like? And then I'm going to be at eight years. So um, kind of looking at like pretty quickly seeing, okay, this is the way that this war is going and I'm going to take command somewhere and feel like we're getting out of here, you know, and then I'm going to have a peacetime, you know, company command and then it'll be eight years. So what, you know, uh yeah I was like, okay i need to i need to move on and get this next thing you know? was it because of the peacetime was it because it was like what's the point of going back and taking command if we're not really getting ready for a game anyway yeah I, yeah I, partly that not necessarily you know i love the people that i work with sure um, you know i had a, a great couple great battalion commanders had some really um great company commanders great first great first sergeants across the board you know, great squad leaders, loved working with soldiers and then kind of saw I got pretty close to um, my battalion commander, my second battalion commander while I was there and had an opportunity to kind of see his day. And when I was an XO, got to see a lot of the, you know, OK, so what is what a day in the life of a company commander in an infantry brigade? What does that yeah. look like? Yeah. You know, and what do I love about the army? It's like time with soldiers is out doing the thing. It's doing the job. What does a company commander do? Sits in a lot of meetings and then does a, spends 80% of his time dealing with the bottom 10% of his formation, you know, and then that and turning those amber slides into green, which is, which is the, you know, cynical. Pretty sexy. Yep. Yeah. It's like, it's you know, yeah, it's like, doing doing the doing the job even like at ntc you know yeah. as as uh you know whatever is that is i actually loved it you know loved going out to yeah 
love doing the training, love doing the stuff. Doing the job is great. But it seems like it was like, oh, that's not what that is. And then if you really make this a career, you're spending less and less time, you know, running around. Yep. You yep. know, even if you're in peacetime, yep. you're a battalion commander. You don't get to go through the shoot house. You get to go, you know, go to range control. And, right. You know, right. I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know what you do as a battalion commander, but as a company commander, you know. Like, yeah. You're yeah. overseeing all those risk assessment matrices and yeah, that's really fun stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for you, now you're in Kuwait on the way back, you start Googling how to become an actor. And then, um, I mean, I, I want to make sure everybody's aware um, as they're listening to you describe what I'm going to ask you about next. I mean, there's really, I, I think the general consensus has been unchanged for decades that there's really, um, you know, the NYU and Yale drama are really the top master and Juilliard are the, are the top acting programs in the country. I mean, the most elite um, places that you can possibly go to get trained. So for you to end up at NYU, something had to have happened um, that, that, you know, I mean, a simple Google search telling you to go become an actor, you know, is probably not going to make you immediately qualify to get into NYU uh, at masters. What was the, what was your pipeline to get there? What happened? What was that process like for you? Well, I can't, well, I came back to Washington and I did, um, I started just, you know, getting on actors access, like even, even auditions for school art until, you know, I was getting out. I I started my terminal leave in I think December and then I was out, out in February. Those auditions are in, I think they're in February and March and basically all the schools audition all at once. So I was applying to every, every, every school. Okay. Um, and you still hadn't acted. Had you acted at all yet? Had you gone to a class? Had you, what were you uh, doing? I found a Meisner, the thing that really, really helped. I forgot about that actually. Um, Meisner, Greg okay. Gilmore, he closed it down. He moved, I think, I think to like Iowa or, or something, but he was doing Meisner in a basement in Seattle, you know, once a week on like Tuesday, you know, or like, yeah, Tuesday night at like seven thirty. So got with those folks um, and saw, you know, there was people that were, you know, Meisner training. It like, you know, gets a little intense sometimes. Like, all right, well, you know, we'll work it. I loved it. He he was a big part of, you know, starting to look at what it looks like to train as an actor. You know, and this was the first time you'd ever taken an acting class. First acting class of all time was Greg Gilmore in a basement in in Seattle. You know? And how did that, how did it feel being in that room? I mean, both culturally, psychologically, like, was it just a complete whiplash, like being there? What was it like for you? I think it was um, an immediate realization that what served me up until now is not going to serve me. And oh. that was my, I mean, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but my experience during first year, first year NYU was the most unhappy and unsatisfied event in my entire life. It was very, very difficult probably the worst year of my life because came from a job that I kind of had figured out how to do, you know, nobody like really knows what they're doing in any infantry officer job, but like you kind of sort out how to not look like an idiot. Right. And then spent a year just, you know, most people who are going to NYU, you know, have been training their whole lives. Four of my classmates had done drama for undergrad 
people had, you know, significant, one of my classmates had done, you know, professional Shakespeare for a decade, you know, and I was like, I, you know, I've done Meisner in the basement. Um, and just was horrible. I was terrible, um, all the time and couldn't figure out how to, cause you know, you squeeze harder and you try harder and it just gets worse and worse and worse. So, um, man, just suffering and being terrible for a year. So that was my first year experience. And then kind of started to get into the swing of things. Um, where had to, um, you know, learn, learn that first thing of what served you in the army is not necessarily going to serve you here. And then, you know, corrected away from that and then corrected, counter corrected to like, you gotta, you gotta make it your own. You gotta do your own thing. You gotta, you know, this, this is the person that you are. You're the kind of person that wanted to go into the army. You're the kind of person that you're the kind of idiot that went through ranger school twice and volunteered to do that, you know? So, you know, that's acting is not going to look like somebody who, whose parents work in the fashion industry, you know, like talk about that culture shift. Cause I imagine coming from four years of West point, then five years of active duty infantry officer yeah. time. And now coming into, it's been a while since you've been around, forget normal people, but elite artists, I mean, right. or artists in training. I mean, that's, that's a real radical mindset shift and cultural shift. Was it weird? Was it disorienting for you at first, especially in that first year? Or did it naturally feel like a home right off the bat? I, yeah. Uh, immediately when I went to um, you callbacks, so you do the first auditions. I was in San Francisco. They go around to several cities. I auditioned to, uh, you know, for a bunch of schools, um, uh, callbacks to, you know, like USC, Florida, like, a, you know, a few places, but like got to NYU and then went to callbacks at NYU. And literally like stepped onto the floor. I was like, yeah, this is, this is it. I gotta, I gotta get into this place. Um, and just the way that they had talked about themselves. You know? Wow. It's a little bit weird, you know, cause it's acting, but they're like compared to Yale and Juilliard, we see ourselves as the, the school that works, the school that, you know, the try hard school. We're, we're the effort, mm. the blue collar school. Um, which I like, I was like, yeah, okay. I, that, that definitely resonates for me. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, the people call it, you kind of have your head down. But when I started school, I was stunned actually by how similar it is. Um, you know, West, West Point definitely. And then, you know, also the army, like high level, high performers, you know, like high performers are high performers. So, uh, and then also an environment, you get to West Point and I, you know, this was my experience. I was like, okay, I'm captain of these sports teams and I'm the, mm -hmm. you know, I was ASB president and cool guy. And then I get to West Point. It's like, nobody cares. Everybody's, mm -hmm. everybody was captain of their football team and everybody oh, was right. school president. Nobody cares about you. And that's like a good feeling that you're like, you know, you're not, you're, you're certainly not the smartest person in the room by, by a significant margin. And just constantly be around people that are both extremely driven and hardworking and extremely, you know, shockingly talented. Um, you know, you see like some acting in classes and be like, 
wow, I've never seen anything like this. This is unbelievable. Um, so that that's for me, that's very motivating, you know, it's like, okay, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of guys out there who are good looking and are extremely talented. Like, right. You you know, you're not going to like out talent all the thousands of actors that are trying to do this, that fit your type. Like you, you have to work. You have to really, really work. So what were you struggling the most with? What was the biggest stretch for you, especially Mm -hmm. coming into it with so little training to begin with? Yeah, I think the um, in plays, the number one thing was not, you know, you're not responsible for anybody else. Just, Mm -hmm. you know, you're the, and that was a really, really important lesson uh, lesson to learn because now, like, I like theater. I I would do theater again, but like, really, what I want to do is TV and film. Um, And especially for that. Half the time you're acting to a piece of tape on the wall. It is totally solitary. Everybody is doing their other jobs. They don't want to, you know, the director doesn't want to talk to you about your motivation. He wants you to come with a plan and he wants you to just do, do your thing. And don't worry about anything else. Stop messing with your microphone. Do your thing, you know? Um, and so I had come from, you know, five years in the last couple of years at West Point, like, being responsible for and, and sort of like having this persona that was defined by, you know, being a leader and making sure, if, you know, it's not your mm-hmm. fault, but it might be, you know, it might not be your fault, but it is your responsibility. It's like, Hey, just whatever they're doing does not affect you. Do, do your own thing. So that was the number one thing. And then number two was just, um, effort. What is mm-hmm. it, you know, what does it mean? Uh, to have effort. The book that changed my life was recommended by our um, one of our movement teachers, Jim Caldwell. Oh, uh, it's called The Actor and the Target by somebody. Like somebody. if you're gonna read one one book on acting, read The Actor and the Target. Um, and basically that you know, the title, The Actor and the Target. There's an actor. And you put your mental energy on something else. So your mental energy is not on you. So spent, spent, you know, especially the first year and a half was just terrible and was just bad and could feel that I was bad and knew that I was bad and was just thinking more about myself to try to figure out how to, you know, so getting worse and worse and worse the more that I, you know, because you're, you're training in your body, you're training in your voice. So I'm constantly thinking about my own voice and the way that I'm talking, the way that I'm moving and just getting worse and worse and worse, got progressively worse as I got there and then read that book. And then just, you know, um, train that separately, train technique, certainly. But then, you know, put your mental energy on something and your attention on something outside of you. That is where your effort should go, you know. Um, because it's not effortless, but right. You want to you want to move your brain from thinking about yourself and the way that you look and the way that you're talking. What What did you start to fall in love with? Was was, was there a certain playwright? Was there a certain class? Was there a certain aspect that started to kind of move you, kind of level you up, or get your inspiration going? Or you were like, "Hey, this is really I want to do more of stuff like this." Um, was there anything like that that really inspired you? 
I think uh, we started working on camera. We started working on camera um, with, you know, a teacher that just like really changed my life. His name is Scott Miller. And he's very, um, like very cerebral. He works a lot with breath and started to do camera work. And as soon as we started to do camera work, like I like that. I I really like that. Um, Because kind of found pretty quickly that theater, um, if you're standing three feet away from somebody, acting that's going to be effective, good for theater because you need right. to be, you need to communicate an intention and people need to be able to hear you and understand you. So that good acting in theater that would be, you know, normal for somebody that's standing across from me is not good on, yeah. on stage. And so it, I, I felt a lot, you know, cause we do all these shows and I'm on stage and I'm just getting, you know, tough notes. And I'm just like, man, it, like when I feel like I'm, just out there and I'm kind of, you know, not thinking about it, which is good. I'm getting corrected out of that. It doesn't seem like it's, you know, good enough. And then went on camera and they were like, yes, that's, that's great. You know, cause that's like, you, you know, your microphone yep. is this far from yep. your face and, you know, you're not being smaller, but it's much more uh, like the way that you communicate. Naturalistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I like that. Sometimes I think they argue less training is okay for film. Yeah, because you can get that close right. up as long as you're able to relax and think. It's always funny. Do you do you ever hear the stories about Sterling Hayden? Do you no. Uh, so he was he was um, you know one of these B movie tough guys. Um, he did a couple of big movies in The Godfather. He was the corrupt cop in The Godfather, the original Godfather. You know that breaks Al Pacino's jaw. Oh um, yeah. But he, but he had made his career for decades being all, in all these film noir movies. But he was um, he was an OSS uh, officer in World War II, and he fought with the communists and Tito in Yugoslavia against the Nazis. And he had gone against the Nazi submarines, and he did it for a long time. And he really developed a bond with the Yugoslavs. It actually got him on McCarthy's blacklist. Because he was openly communist. He was openly sympathetic because he'd fought with them against the Nazis. But he uh, but he was always a B-movie actor. And he gave a series of interviews. If anybody ever YouTubes this, it's, they're fucking fascinating as hell. But in the 1970s, he gave a bunch of interviews to Tom Snyder about how dissatisfied he was with himself as an actor. And he said, I don't know how it is that I could go against Nazi submarines. But the scariest thing in the world to me is a close-up. And the second somebody puts a camera in my face, I shut down. I become a stereotype of myself. And when Robert Altman cast him in The Long Goodbye in 1971, Altman – and he was supposed to play this like Hemingway-like writer. And Altman, like Altman did, put the camera like on the other side of the swimming pool and just let Sterling Hayden go. And he was fucking amazing. But it was like he didn't have the pressure of having that camera right in his face. You were the other way. You, though, like you you liked having the camera there and being able to just let your thoughts read like that seemed like that was more of a natural fit for you. Yeah, I think um, I'd, I've had that experience, but it's with singing. I'm terrified, terrified of singing. The second job I ever did, I did a little community, community like Lakewood Community Theater 
out in Washington while I was on terminal leave before I went to West. So I'd gotten into West or not West uh, NYU. But like before I did that, I was living in Seattle and I did a couple like little shows and I did um, Legally Blonde, the musical played <laughs> Warner. <laughs> and really, you know, I mean, went into those auditions and was having was more afraid than, you know, anything that I ever did in the army. Wow. You know? More wow. afraid than, you know, everyone in school, like jumping at her, but like yeah. way, had way more of a physiological fear response uh, to that. And then we had singing class at NYU and kind of spent my first year of singing class, like weeping on the ground because it was such a vulnerable thing. I, I like couldn't handle it. Just had like emotionally overwhelmed. Um, and still, you know, I like to audition for musicals. I'd like to sing, but like if I am doing a singing audition in my apartment, I like, like nobody else can be here. Nobody else can be, you know, like don't listen to me sing, go away. You know, um, it's terrifying to me. Wow. And, you know, being on, being on stage still, I just, you know, um, it's like a nice, nice rush, but yeah, for some reason, the camera is, um, it doesn't phase you. No, no, it's, it's nice. You know? Do you think it's social media too? And the fact we, we have cameras in front of our faces, like all the time, I feel like we might be different now than we, yeah, than we used people, to be. People, you know, people, you know, if you don't like taking pictures, you know, if you're like a person that doesn't right. you know, you just like right. taking pictures all the time, <laughs> taking pictures of yourself. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, it's less of like an odd yeah. invasion on your privacy. Yeah. I do know that it's kind of an interesting thing now because the game is all self-tapes. I've done one in-person audition so far uh, in a year and a half. It's all self-tapes. And I, wow. a lot of actors just like can't watch themselves you know they hate everything that they yeah, do yeah 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 um this is true for me and it's true for a lot of people like the person who has the worst opinion about your work is you right often. You right know, the scene that you love everybody else is like yeah that, no that's or the take that you love no it's awful that was terrible um and vice versa um so that i think can be difficult for some people um but, you know, if, if that's difficult for you, like, right, you got to. No, that's between you and God. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to figure that out. Um, I want to ask kind of a, a hippy dippy question here, but um, it, it strikes me that because of the two different worlds that you've spent the majority of your life in now, are you the same person that you were when you were in the army or are you different? Are you more self-actualized? Are you more. Do you feel more complete, more of a 360 degree person? Or do you feel like, no, I was going in one direction and now I'm in, took a right turn and I'm going in a different direction. And I'm, you know, there's, there's a little bit of, you know, I'm the same person, but I'm, I'm just, I act, I carry myself differently. How much bleed over is there? What's the Venn diagram overlap between those two worlds for you? Yeah, I think um, the difference, like I said, there's a developed as a young man, this persona of you know being the leader being the you know team captain being the guy being the guy that works hard which carried me unknowingly to west point and then into being a platoon leader you know and that's a it's like that's a that's a persona that's a mm -hmm. that's a thing that you've adopted and then 
through going to, you know, the program that I went to had a lot of realizations and a lot of support from teachers that are saying like, hey, uh, this isn't really serving you right now. Let's let that go. I can see that that's like a persona. Let's like, let's scratch it a little bit and let's find, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but let's, let's see what else. What else? Is there mm. something else? I'm sure there's something else. Mm. And so now have come back to, yes, that is, that was a persona. And, but like that's, that there are parts of that that I am and mm-hmm. that I don't dislike. You know, I want to be a person that's defined by work ethic and a person who's defined by leadership and, you know, a person who is, a, you know, the person can, who you can always count on. You know, those are things that that like of my persona that I but being aware of it is a big step. So it's not mm-hmm. a projection mm-hmm. in the world. It's just a person that you are, you know, which also there are parts of this that love like the that don't aren't like super compatible all the time to acting, you know. Like I don't I don't want to yeah. go to parties and meet people and meet producers and I don't I don't want to schmooze and that's not I don't like those environments. Don't um there's parts of like there's parts of theater that I'm not really particularly interested in, you know. Yeah. Um and like that's so, like what specifically? Oh, I, you know, did a couple plays at NYU that were so incredibly dark. I did this play, Mm. the big play that we did my third year, um, like my, my like big role was as this like 70 year old illiterate potato farmer, um, you know, and I'm kind of like a bouncy, I do like, like comedy or like, you know, Tennessee Williams, like, you know, physical uh, I did a 70 year old, like decrepit, illiterate potato farmer um, who murders a very, very newborn, newborn baby in the end of the first act and then commits suicide in the second act. And I hated that play so much. <laughs> you know, like you don't you're not like asking to be casting this thing. I just got right. Like, right. Oh, my God. And it was just so dark. And I, we did all of these plays and they all just ended terribly. And they, you know, they just all have like murder and incest. It's like, why? like, you know, uh, like there, there are other things, you know, yeah. <laughs> there are other things. I'm just like, um, and the, this is just kind of my take on it. You know, the like theater community comes from a group, myself included, that is very privileged and fortunate. I'm extremely it's incredible that I have the ability to sit in my little apartment in New York City and try to become an actor. You know, like that's very, very fortunate to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. And it just it just kind of sits in a weird place of um, the theater community, then telling a lot of stories of um, people in the world that are just, you know, like the worst suffering, the worst things that are going on. Um, and kind of like playing dress up doing these things. I don't. That's a really interesting point. I think there's some, it's funny. We just did a, um, a workshop production of a new play, uh, the other day. And, um, I'm trying to think if I should actually say this. I don't think it's a ding on anybody, but it was interesting because we had a, it was a university crowd that was watching a lot of theater film majors and all that. 
Yeah. And um, I mean, this play was cancer, war stories, and child molestation. I mean, there's no there's no levity in it. It's a rough play. Yeah. And um I was there like teeth on edge, like listening to it going, Oh God, now we're gonna get the cancer. Oh, now you're gonna get the child molestation. Uh, I was like, and I was but I was like, you know, I, I was just feeling it for the audience. I was like, oh, are they really gonna tolerate this? And because of the youth of the audience, they were all wildly impressed, blown away, totally eager for it. And I was like, that's interesting. I was like, I don't think an older audience would have tolerated that. An older audience would go, dude. I've been through divorces. I've seen a lot of death. I'm I'm done with that, man. Give me kiss me, Kate. That's what I'm up for. I'm not up for this shit. You know, and I think I think there's an interesting split there. And I think what you're pointing at, the inherent privilege of people that are able to make a life in the theater. And I don't use that derisively. I think, I mean, yeah. we, you know, great. privilege is great. I mean, like, God great. bless. We we should yeah. all be privileged. Like that should be that should be an and aspiration. Let's also make art. Make yeah, let's you make want. art. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, and uh. But I, but I do think there is, that's an interesting comment that it can feel like playing dress up because I, and I actually wanted to ask you this, I'll put this in form of a question. <laughs> having gone through Afghanistan, having gone through, for lack of a better word, let's say the trauma of multiple bites at the apple at Ranger School, um, certainly the significant emotional events of a military career. Um. Do you feel like your tolerance for trauma is decreased that you're like, yeah, dude, I've kind of already hit those emotional peaks. Like I want to do, you know, there's certain, like I'm up for a good real story. I'm cool about being real, but there's also like, and and I'm, I'll I'll give you my bias. This is in form of a question, but I'll, I'll give it some context. Like for me, my deployment shows that I watch, I watch nothing but sitcoms of the nineties. I deployed every one of my last six years in every, every one of them. That's all I do is just watch. I was like, back when the world made sense. This was the world I, I was coming of age in. It's just funny. It's lighthearted. It has no no socio-political commentary of note. And it just kind of it made me feel good. And I was like, and now I notice in the theater, I, I mean, I love the heavy stuff. I, pre, or I, I appreciate the heavy stuff. But man, I love just a good fucking goofy, over-the-top, well-timed out comedy. Because it's like, ah, I'm, I'm there, man. Like, life's been hard enough, man. Like, I... I I really dig just having a good chuckle. Um, there's nothing that's going to be as close to my heart as that. So in form of a question, is that sort of similar for you? Or do you still feel like there's um, there's a high tolerance for trauma in your artwork as well? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, you use the word levity. And I kind of have, I just kind of have a problem with it. Because like, man, being in terrible terrible situations i just think you know after the after the fact most people who've been through those things that i know or like all the things that i have been through in my life that have like been really really dark usually like make fun of them <laughs> like yeah or or yeah. just yeah just the willingness to not i i think it just demonstrates like a willingness to not take yourself so seriously yes there's yes. like a it comes in and it's like we're going to be sort of precious about this and and it's like, well, I feel like you're being precious because this is not um because you haven't you don't feel yet. like you have ownership of this story. Yeah, yeah. Because your that's, life maybe been kind of easy, you know. That's like, incredibly insightful. Yeah. You are you are like I watched some plays and I'm like, yeah, that's like the worst thing I've ever that's just, you know, so much more awful than like my life has been. And it's like yeah, yeah, okay. But um 
being precious that that's that's one sense of like being precious and then like elevating trauma to this thing that we glorify i know act and i talked to actors actually like very um i had the chance to talk to a couple like really experienced actors that have been out in the world for like 10 years and they were talking about that i told them about that experience of that play and they were like oh i would have loved to done it I'm like as an actor going to the the deepest mm-hmm. darkest parts is something that they're very interested in um and that was really helpful to me too so it's like yeah i i totally i totally feel that and i think i think i wasn't ready for that to enjoy mm-hmm. that yeah, yeah. I, th- I think if you um i didn't have the confidence in my work to take that on at that yeah. point because i think a lot of the confidence that i've developed at the very very end of school and then mm. since being out in the professional world is like this is a job you know yeah firemen go fight fires mailmen deliver the mail i know my lines and i believe in circumstances you know it's not like it's not crazy or like magical and it's not better than anything anybody else does and that has given me a very good perspective on things so just like yeah just like show up and work um and being in that play like having feeling and responsibility for that character it's like mm. i don't yeah don't don't do that yeah. or feeling a, a moral responsibility for the for whatever like messages the play or the movie or right. whatever right you now if it's strongly political it's like that's not really into my business i'm just yeah believing what this character believes while i'm on stage and then i let that go and i go watch new girl just because you brought it up, I'm, I can't help but ask about it. And and by the way, I know we're running over an hour, so oh, I'm, yeah, you, you give me a sign if you're good. But um, but I um, where that when I was acting decades ago, that was always kind of in the back of my mind. Nobody really gave a shit that I was acting, so it never really became an issue. But what, what's you, what's your um, what your what are your left and right limits as an actor? Like, is there stuff that you wouldn't do? Is there stuff that whether because of the subject matter or the content, like how have you made that decision with yourself as to where those lines are? I, um, and I've, I've turned down one audition. It was really sad. I got it. Um, the name of the movie was Tangle and I cannot tell you how excited I was because I thought it was the Pixar movie. And I was like, Flynn Rider, Flynn Rider. (laughs) <laughs> the role I was born to do. It was not that. Um, it was on a streaming service uh, that's porn light. It's not porn, but it's porn light. And, oh, I, you know, my reps clearly had read like the character description, but not the actual, Holy not shit. The actual um, screenplay. But this was like very beginning when I, when I was started. And like now, even now, like every audition, like, there's to really, really be a reason for me to turn that down. You know, like I, I got to get some credits in the belt. <laughs> right. And you got to just, you know, you send out, you know, I did like a hundred auditions last, last year and booked four of them, you know, like yeah, yeah, you, know, right. you just got to like have bullets in the gun. Right. Yeah. 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 But anyways, I start reading the screenplay and it is, uh, you know, sexual violence. It's meant to be a comedy, but it's just like, wow graphic and just insane 
And I just tried, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to come back to this tomorrow and I'll just have fresh eyes on it. And then, you know, was running lines with one of my friends. I said, like, I just can't say these words. I can't say this is horrible. Um, you know, for me personally, like there's um, work that I would like to do. I'm a Christian. I'd like to do some work with, you know, and that, like the movies that I would like to write, like I've, uh, I'm working on a, um, a pilot that's, you know, the Old Testament in the future in space, you know, like I'd love to do stuff like that. And, yeah, and yeah, yeah. if you do, if you do porn light movies, uh, you're probably not going to, you know, I probably shouldn't then come back and make films of faith later on in my career. So, you know, do those first before the porn. That, that's the way that goes. Normally, <laughs> exactly. Think, right? yeah, then yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Then you tangle. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry if anybody here was in tangle. I'm sure it was a great movie. Um, yeah. I, I don't think um, other, other than that, you know, that's everything that I've worked on now. Uh, there's been the way, the places that I've had to um, stand up for myself has have been nothing that's been like real jobs from I'm going to say real jobs. That's not the way to put it. Uh, paying jobs that you're getting from my rep. I've, I've, I've mm-hmm. got one audition from my reps that I had to turn down for that reason, for moral reasons. Everything else is, you know, people have intimacy coordinators now. And like, you know, there's stuff if it's, you know, weird material. They got people that are that are going to handle it. It's all been student short films. Um, so if anybody's an actor out there and you're like looking, you know, get out there and do go be in like 15 yep. short films for free with, you know, if you're lucky enough to live in New York, you can do, you know, NYU, the film, the film department is great, especially the grad film department. It's like excellent. They make some great films. There is also, uh, I don't know what it is, you know, um, student filmmakers make these films and there's just insane sex and violence and nudity mm-hmm. and you just have to you know um and that stuff kind of happens on those non you know those non-sag sets where you like show up and they're like okay well you know we added a couple pages and you know your character is going to be hung or your character is going to be you know and it's like you know no no i'm not going to do that so um yeah, definitely. Like the you know work begets work. Yep. Yep. Auditioning today for like a you know a couple sh- for like three short films, like get, getting as much stuff as you can, but then definitely have a plan and know your left and right limits and know. Um, I did a feature film, I, the the film Sirens that I was in. You know, had to work on that a lot because there was a lot of like intimacy in it and just kind of stand up for yourself. Like, hey, let's do this this way. You know. And again, it's not the, you don't want there to be like an emotion, you know, don't be emotional about it. It's like, Hey, we're working. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm not going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Where did the writing come in? When did you start writing and what was that process like? Yeah. I have always, have always done, you know, writing never like in an organized way. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, the play there is no Eden. that was eventually there is no Eden. i've been writing that i started writing that a little bit like my first year of school mm. um and 
finished a version of it that was terrible. And then kind of like in the last six months, then in like a three month period, kind of rewrote it um, and made it kind of what it is. And then it really started to write screenplays. So um, kind of just started writing, got fade in and started writing screenplays. Uh, I think I got excited about it and really started writing after I read uh, the, the story grid by Sean Coyne, Sean Coyne, C-O-Y-N-E, if you okay. read that book. No. Um, so he was an editor. He's the editor for uh, Stephen Pressfield, mm. their friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and it basically was like, you know, everything that you do, that's fine, but you have to adhere to story structure and you have to adhere to not, not, you know, not just like one story structure, there are structures and rules in genre. So know your genre and then write in a genre. And one of the things I talk about in that book is, like, you know, if you write in the murder mystery genre, these things must happen in your script. You know, uh, you mu- there must be a dead body if it's. And then uh, so after reading that, then I was watching things both that I love. And I'm fascinated by movies that like really, really don't work <laughs> and seeing like, oh, yeah, that doesn't quite work. And it's missing that thing. It's uh, missing that scene. Interesting. You know, for instance, in, you know, there's a in action movies. There's always a scene. There has to be a scene where the hero is at the mercy of the villain. And in like movies, I can't think of any on the top of it, but like a movie or yeah, a story hard. where that's yeah. missing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. People will walk out of the theater and they're like, Man, that villain just didn't, wasn't quite like, hmm, for me, you know? I never really thought it was going to fail. Like, well, it's true. Gonna have that. Yeah. So then got excited about that because the stuff that I was writing had good characters and had witty lines and stuff, but it was just a mess and didn't make any sense. And that book, that book helped me like structure it out, beat it out, make that skeleton. And it will be so much easier to then write within that. The last two screenplays that I've written and the, um, I adapted a friend's uh, novel into a, uh, a pilot, like a 45 minute pilot. And just using that, like, it's just, Oh, it just happens. And then people read it. And I was having the experience of people reading my writing and just not getting it. Um, cause the story struck, cause it structurally, mm. I didn't have technique. I had no yeah. technique. Yeah. You know, do so. you write, do you continue to write daily when you feel like it weekly? Like what's your discipline when it comes to like, writing? Uh, always got to sit here and do some, some amount of writing every day. Um, I have tasks, um, that I'm writing. I think, uh, you know, during the day I'm like, I was taking notes and taking little, you know, voice mm-hmm. recordings, like weird stuff that I'm picking up. Um, I think uh, if you really, really start to write like pretty seriously, pretty quickly, at least my experience of it was like, wow, uh, 5% of my time is writing words uh, that will actually then be in the final product. 95% of my time is researching, working on mm-hmm. structure, mm-hmm. reading the story out, making um you know, story grids, figuring out character, 
uh, running running lines with people to see if they sound right. You know, uh, wh- where does this stack up uh, compared to your acting? I mean, obviously, you're still billing yourself as an actor first. I mean, I assume that it's the typical, hey, I'm an actor, but if I've got my own script and I've got my own content, then I have some autonomy and some ability to unilaterally control my career. But do you see yourself, I mean, do you find yourself falling in love with writing more than acting sometimes? Do you find your, is it a way out? Is it a safety valve? So if you don't like how you're being cast or the roles that are coming your way, you always have the option of creating your own content. What's, what's your end game with the writing? I think for me, um, TV and film so far is, is great. Um, and I think it, it really depends on like my, my advice from all my experience that I have, uh, would be just really be honest with yourself because TV and film, it's a visual medium. What somebody sees the first second they look at you, that is what you're going to be cast as. So all of the, pre before they know you judgments that people make just based on your face that's the way that you're going to get cast so i you know mine tends to like kind of adhere to what i like to do so i get you know i'm i'm lucky enough to get like auditions that i like and work that you know speaks to me uh, i think writing you know i've made now three short films you know and I've, i did that play and i was in that play so you know i've done these I got I'm getting those IMDb credits for, <laughs> for yeah. stuff that I wrote and directed, yeah. you know, um, and it's typically that, you know, been stuff that's like, you know, good, good for me. Cause it's written for me. I think it too, uh, as far as, you know, again, like work begets work. So if you, you just gotta be like doing stuff. Yeah. So if nobody's casting you and stuff or things are slow, make stuff, make stuff that, you know, for free, mix up with your friends and act in it, and direct it. I think also I made a short film. The first short film that I made was during COVID and I wrote all of it and then like directed all of it and directed all the, all the actors. It was like 30 minutes long. It was just monologues because nobody could be in the mm-hmm. same room together. Mm-hmm. It was COVID. Um, and that was an incredibly useful experience as an actor to be like, okay, if I'm a director, what do I really want the actor to do? do what do you know how do i want them to be prepared what do, what do i need from this person you know and what do i not need what the actors just like stress about in their minds mm-hmm. they just don't care you know mm-hmm. um so that was extremely useful to me yeah but what you know the next like and the next goal is to make it you know get money for a feature you know the last Feature sirens that I did was made, you know, I think like under two hundred thousand dollars. You yeah. know, made a whole feature. Yeah. Like, and and have seen now shots of it, and it like looks great. It's doable. It's doable. You got to be smart. You got to, you know, it takes a lot more work. Yeah. Than as the producer or whatever, but like it's doable. So. But there, it seems like you're you have a very entrepreneurial mindset towards your craft like you're not you're you're not somebody that's um dead set on the past way that the traditional way of doing things that you're looking for those opportunities to move the needle to get your work out there and you're not sitting on your hands and just waiting for what the the showbiz gods want to give you right yeah i think um 
that transit because NYU grad acting, you're working you're six days a week. You're doing 14 hour days, 16 hour days, you know, every single day. Crazy. And then you got out of school. Wow. You have so much time. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm working. I'm working as a personal trainer, you know, now like 20 hours a week. Uh, and like, otherwise, how many more like daylight hours are there in the week? Yeah. Yeah. So that honestly, for the people, for my classmates, the people that I've graduated, that is the number one challenge that I would say that they've faced is they get out of grad school and they have so much time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and then I've talked to people, I'm researching and looking like, okay, so what does it really take to get funding to make your own feature film? Thousands of hours of work. So there's there's that time. You got the time. <laughs> hey man, this is um freaking awesome. I'm I'm I've got a bunch more stuff that i'd love to ask you but you've been really generous with your time and i'm not going to come back and talk at some point yeah. will you yeah yeah it's really nice to really nice to meet you in person i know i know or as close as we can get yeah, yeah for right now i know and you know next time you come up for a west point thing you know we're only 10 minutes away from west point we're just over yes the hill. i had no idea so, yeah yeah so um yeah at some point we can do something in person but uh dude this was great talking to be continued and yeah, yeah i'll you know let us know how things are going, but let's talk down the road. Great. Thank you so much, Chris. That was the savage wonder of James David Henry. Um, really a fun conversation. I hope you guys uh, enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot more that he and I are going to have to talk about um, over the next few years. I, I think he's. Uh, I'm really impressed with his drive, as I said at the top of the show really impressed with um, his career prospects and and more than his his career prospects because of his entrepreneurial spirit. Um, I think it's a dangerous game for actors to be passive. Um, you know, acting is already reliant on creative artists to create product for them to act in. So the fact that James is taking matters into his own hands, writing content, looking for opportunities, getting smart, on the business and what needs to be done to put one foot in front of the other, I think really bodes well. So I'm excited for him to see where his career goes and um, we'll be keeping tabs. Okay. Um, shameless plugs that I should do. Um, if you're in the greater Cornwall area, we have so much going on. We're wrapping up 39 steps at the parlor, which has been ludicrous and fun and I'm really going to miss that show when it wraps. But we have our final show of our 2022 parlor season, which is Dudley Moore and Peter Cook's uh, sketch show, Good Evening, which I'm really looking forward to. I'm acutely aware that doing British comedy from the 1970s might be a bridge too far for some people. Um, unfortunately, it is perfectly suited to the demographic of young Chris Meyer. And I hope more more than just that, but it's something that I just cracks me up. It's my, this is my uh, privilege to pick shit that cracks me up, and this was definitely one. Uh, so we'll be doing that. We add, just added a fifth performance to it because they've been. I think we have at least a couple of sellouts of that perform of that show, um, and since they're going quick, we decided to add a fifth performance of it so more people could see it, and hopefully, if they're not already a fan of. British humor from the 1970s, they can become a fan of British humor from the 1970s. I, I guess that's dangerous to say because people will think the show is dated 
And it really isn't. I think that some of that stuff is just fucking timeless. Um, but anyway, uh, that I'm really looking forward to. We have a bunch of other stuff going on, none of which I can talk about yet. Um, a lot of internal workshopping and some cool projects uh, that we're very excited about internally, um, but nothing that I can talk about here yet. I feel like there is something else that I need to talk about, though, and I don't know what it is. We should have announcements coming shortly on the winner and finalists of our current playwriting competition that's in judging. Um, so that was the competition that ended on July 4th. And uh, I don't know. Our judges are been working really hard and really um, briskly on reading the plays and uh, discussing them and coming up with kind of a consensus on who the winner and finalists need to be for our full-length and 10-minute playwriting competitions. So I'm excited to hear that. So we'll be announcing that in the dangerously near future. And I'll probably be, not probably, but I will, I plan on having all those winners and finalists on the podcast like we did with the first iteration of the competition. Um, I'll take this moment, though, to also um, say to anyone that is a writer, wants to be a writer, um, and is open to going into the theater and having their work done live. Um, next season at the parlor, we are no longer going to do any established work. For So if you end up not being a fan of British comedy of the 1970s, um, it's okay. Starting next season, now that we have accrued so many veteran plays, uh, we are going to be putting on the best 10-minute plays that we read in this past year, which is two iterations of competitions. So out of 400 plus selections of 10 minute plays, we will be putting on my favorites uh, next season at the parlor. Uh, And if I can have my way, I think there's one veteran authored full length play that really cracked me up that I'd love to do at the parlor as well. Um, So anyway, if you are open to trying your hand at playwriting, try out a 10 minute play. Give it a shot. Send it to us. Uh, you could possibly win or place and get grant money. Um, but even if you don't, if the play still is really good, um, we'd love to do it. And we take 10-minute plays seriously. We have a lot of – we can get a lot of mileage out of 10-minute plays. Um, so I uh, let that be your inspiration if you're at all inclined to author a 10-minute play. And it's a great way to learn – the form and learn playwriting if you haven't written a play before. So just throwing that out there. Okay. I don't think there's any other um, shameless. Plus. Oh God, of course there is. What am I saying? The biggest shameless plug I could give um, it completely skipped my mind because I've been thinking about it so much. I just kind of took it for granted. November 11th veterans day that night, we will have the first savage Wonderground event in old town, Alexandria at the beautiful, internationally recognized principal gallery on King street. The space is awesome. It's two adjoining townhouses. We're going to have this immersive theater experience where the audience is going to move, migrate from room to room to room. Uh, We're going to feature the paintings of invader girl. We will have three artists, uh, three veteran artists interpreting the work of invader girl. So we'll have Jesus, Daniel Hernandez singing, and we'll have Buck Bolliard, the writer, uh, writing pieces specifically inspired by Invader Girl's uh, work. 
And but then we'll have Dex reading. Uh, I think I can't remember if she's reading new poetry or old stuff, but whatever. It's going to be freaking awesome. So if you want to know more about that, go to savagewonder.com. Again, that's savagewonder.com, and you will see all the links to buy tickets through Eventbrite. And uh, it's $20 a ticket because we are trying to pay our act, uh, pay our talent. So the talent that's there, we split all the proceeds with them. Um, this is these kind of immersive theaters slash micro festival kind of uh, multimedia experiences are something we want to look at doing on a semi-regular basis. So if you're in the greater D.C., Alexandria, Maryland area, and uh, want to come out and see a really unique show that is very, this particular show is very veteran focused. I mean, it's like, you know, I don't know, very appropriate for Veterans Day. Um, each one of these shows we're, we have, we're designing to be completely unique. So this show will never be done again. It's, we do this one time. So if you're there, if you know, you know. And if not, uh, the next show will be completely different. Tentatively, we are looking at doing one in December as well. Um, location TBD. Um, we, I, and TBD for the public. I have a somewhat good idea of where we might be, but nothing I can announce yet. Um, so come on out to the November one. Get a taste of what this is going to be like. Uh, we're excited to see the turnout. We're super excited. Uh, these are all artists we know, have talked to, have worked with before. Um, so we're really excited to bring them all together and, uh, yeah, really give a different uh, dynamic to Veterans Day evening. So we hope if you're in the Alexandria area, you'll come in and spend it with us. Okay. That's all the shameless plugging I have to do. I want to thank our producer, Michael Neal, as always. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all.